The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, so there is a topic that I have been grappling with for months, and uh, it is the topic of tribalism. And I have been grappling with this topic through my practice, trying to understand it, seeing how it affects my life, how it affects my spiritual practice, how it affects how I interact with people, and trying to understand it. What does it mean? How, is it, how does it relate to how my life exists? So last week... I promised that we were going to do this, and I said, but before, I want to talk about how we meet difficult feelings. And one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about that was that the whole issue of tribalism, by its very nature, brings up difficult feelings and difficult emotions. So I want to remind you what we talked about, which was that normally when we sit in meditation and are mindful or when we're in our daily life and we're mindful and things arise, thoughts arise, we say, okay, we let it go, we just let it go away, and we return to our breath. And if it's too great, then maybe we'll pay some attention to it and we'll follow the physical things in our body that are representative of those thoughts. You know, well, if I'm angry, my stomach is tight, I'll just focus on that stomach is tight. Or we just let it go. We let it go. And this can be a form of suppression or aversion. And so what we do through our practice is we develop the capacity to be able to tell what we have to notice, what we can ignore, and what we have to do about what arises for us. And that this process of noticing through mindfulness builds up the capacity of discernment so that we can say, ah, this I can not pay attention to. This needs, there's something here I need to pay attention to. I don't know what it is, but it keeps coming up. There's something I need to pay attention to. What do you have to notice? What can you ignore? And what do you have to do with what you notice? Sometimes there's something required of us. And part of what's required is effort and diligence, mindfulness of seeing, noticing, putting the effort into notice, the willingness to stop and be okay with not knowing the answer, to have some stop time, to settle in for not knowing so that we can see clearly. This is the goal, to see clearly. So I'm not going to talk about that more because I did all that last week. So now, when I got up this morning knowing what I was going to talk about, I ran across two op-ed pieces written, obviously, by two different people having to do with the recent bombings in Austin. These articles were not about the details of the bombing. They were about these people's responses to the bombing. So the first one was written by a woman who is a writer in the Bronx. She moved to Austin from San Francisco, and she lived in Austin for about eight years. And while she was living there, she said it was really cool, it was kind of a hip place, and people were very tolerant. 
But over time, she decided she had to leave. And one of the reasons she left and moved back east was that she felt lonely. She felt lonely. She still owns a house in East Austin, which is where the bombs, the first three bombs went off, East Austin, which is also the home to black and brown people in Austin, even though Austin is a very tolerant place. And I'm not picking on Austin, it's just current. Most of the people who are black or brown skin live in East Austin. So this is where she has her house. And she said, although she was... um, she, she liked living in Austin. She said, I was a tall, dark-skinned black woman with natural hair. I was an outsider in a place that's supposed to value weirdness, but I never felt like the right kind of weirdness. I never felt like the right kind of weirdness. She was lonely. She felt lonely. She went on to describe her reactions to the unfolding Uh, events in Austin, and she said in the beginning they were called hate crimes because the first two bombs went off and killed two black men. And people said, ah, it's directed. And then that kind of fell away. The third bomb also went off in East Austin, and it it severely wounded a, a Hispanic woman. And then the idea of it being a hate crime kind of fell away because a bomb went off in an area that was not East Austin. And she said, you know, the problem is, even still, are there any black people who can separate news of bombs from notions of terror? And what she was identifying is that simply because things change, it doesn't mean that the feeling of being under siege and unsafe doesn't necessarily just evaporate into the ether. And that by virtue of where they were living, the geography and their race, they felt threatened. She continued to say, no one wants to admit that this beautiful hipster haven may also be a place where domestic and racist terrorism can thrive. We now know that looking away won't save us. Looking away won't save us. Refusing to see it won't save us. Not looking at something that is uncomfortable won't save us. What she's talking about is the feeling of fear and loneliness. The experience of fear and loneliness. She's not condemning or criticizing anyone. What she's saying is, as a member of my group, I feel this. I feel this. The second article was called The Bomber is Dead, but Fear of Racist Attack Lives On. And this was written by Eric Tang, who is a professor at the University of Texas, Austin, and his specialty is uh, African-American studies and Asian-American studies. His name is Eric Tang. And he said largely the same thing. The narrative of Austin's exceptionalism, the notion of the city as a progressive and countercultural oasis in the deep conservative South, never really applied to them. The feeling is it never really applied to them. That's part of the same sense of loneliness that the first writer talked about. He, He concluded by saying, you know, 
Fear, I know, crept into the hearts of all Austinites, but the events of this month have left this city's African Americans and Latinos wounded in ways that few others will ever truly know. These are wounds that never seem to heal. So I chose these two accounts for several reasons. One's a current. They're in the center of the country. They're not coastal. I'll come back to why that's interesting. They're culturally similar to what we call the coastal elites, but they're not coastal. They speak to the identities that are both racial and cultural. They speak to loneliness, the being different from the majority or the dominant minority affects them. And their reactions are related to tribalism and feelings. The feelings are an important part of the reaction. That it's not necessarily rational. You know, we, li- we like to think that we're rational and that we can make decisions based on facts. And we're, it kind of, when we talk about something like the groups that we belong to, we can't leave out feelings. We can't leave out the reactions that we have. Even if, as good Buddhists, we're going to not be reactionary, we're also good humans. And humans have a strong sense of tribalism, of belonging to groups. It's something that humans do. It's how we have genetically evolved. So I want to talk about uh, tribalism and groups. What, What does it mean to be a member of a group? One thing that happens is we say, this is my group. This little room right here is the group that I'm in. We are all sharing the fact that we're in this room tonight, and therefore we all have something in common. We're in this room tonight. But there may be many, 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 many more things that we don't have in common. But in the system of groups, we say, ah, this is my group. We look around and we say, okay, here are the people in my group. Usually groups are based on ethnicity, geography, religion, race. Some big things are the kinds of tribalism we're talking about, but it can be, you know, NFL teams. It can be, you know, I'm a skateboarder and I like to skateboard and my team is the skateboarding team. There are lots of reasons that we form groups. We have bonds and we have attachments with them. Now, part of that is that we decide that my group is right, better, more enlightened. My group, morally, culturally, spiritually, is superior. The very act of being in a group leads us to define people who are not in the group, who are outside of the group. This is why the we-they sort of division is so prevalent, because it's really hard to avoid. (laughs) It's really hard to avoid. So not only this is my group, but my group is right, moral, best. They, on the outside, don't belong to my group. By that virtue, all of those people have something in common. They don't belong to my group. But so far, not talking too much about how big any of these groups are. These are just general characteristics. Now, also true is that belonging to a group can be voluntary or involuntary. Now, basically, we're all here because we chose to be here. Some of the groups that we belong to 
are involuntary, especially groups that are ascribed to us by other people. Oh, those people are that way. Those are the ones that are most uncomfortable. When we're one of those people, somebody else is imposing on us membership in a group that we may or may not feel like we belong to. The other quality of groups is a sense of insularity. We kind of bathe ourselves in, in what our group thinks. And we're, you know, we're comfortable in our group. And those people are not comfortable for me because this is my group. And th- these people, I'm, you know, I, I know these people. I know what to expect from these people. Even if that's not true, we tend to think that way. So there is this phenomenon called the new exclusivity. And I, I'm going to tell you that a, a lot of the things I'm taking, I'm uh, uh, speaking about, I've, I've uh, come from a couple of several different sources. One, uh, a book by Robert Wright called "Buddhism is True," which is a book about the relationship between mind, mindfulness and psychological states and conditions. It's a very interesting book. Another one is. Um, Political Tribes, which is a new book by Amy Chua, who's a a law professor at Yale, and it's obviously about political tribes, and uh, an article by Andrew Sullivan called America Wasn't Built for Humans uh, that deals with tribalism, Uh, an article by Ajahn Amaro, who is a Theravadan monk who used to grace us here in California but now is in England, uh, so all of these people influence some of the things that I'm going to say to you. So, so when I talk about the new exclusivity, which is a term that Amy Chua uses, it refers to this condition that has arisen where uh, identity is so strong that people will say, you can't talk about X because you're not a woman. You can't talk about Y because you're not black. You can't talk about Z because you're not. You name whatever the division is. So that by virtue of the fact that I'm a woman, I can talk about what it's like to being about being a woman, but you cannot if you're not female. Okay, so these kinds of exclusionary ways of talking also create divisions that we have to deal with, that we have to somehow respond to, that we have to be aware of. Because, it turns out, one of the things that led me into examining this is I had a friend that I said, you know, you're just like me. And she said, no, I'm not. And I said, well, I don't see you as different from me. And she said, how can you not see me as different from you? This woman is Puerto Rican. There may be other things that are different about us, but... I wasn't seeing it. And I had a hard time understanding why she was so adamant that, that I see her Puerto Ricanness. And in talking to various friends, somebody said to me, don't you understand that when you have been discriminated against for something, to have someone say, to, to say, oh, that isn't important to me, is terribly dismissive. And I said, oh, oh, of course, of course, I get it. So this difference between us, where it was becoming a big deal, was because 
I couldn't see from her eyes what she saw. And she couldn't see from my eyes what I saw. This, this is the place that we're engaged in, where we need to be able to see what's arising so that we can see clearly, oh, this is, this is why they're suffering here. This is the reason. It isn't because either one of us is bad or have bad intentions or have bad reasoning. But we're seeing in different ways. We're seeing in different ways. So, let's see. On the other hand, when I look at it from my point of view, I might say, well, I may be privileged by being white and educated and having a variety of, of advantages. However, as a woman who worked largely in a very male-dominated environment all my life, I do understand what it's like to be discriminated against, to be dismissed, to be treated with the, the certain knowledge that I was going to fail. And these kinds of experiences are felt by every group that feels discriminated against in some larger context. So how can I use my understanding of what that feels like to meet someone and not be rejected by them because I don't fit some other external characteristic? And how can I do the same in response? How can I do the same in response? So one of the things that we have to do is, can I see what they see? How am I not seeing what they see? How is my feeling about what they see getting in the way of the conversation? And what are my intentions? Are my intentions to be right? To have them adopt my point of view? What are my intentions? What are my intentions? So then there are group behavior things that happen. People in a group tend to support the group even if it doesn't benefit them personally. Think about that. People in a group tend to support other people in the group even if it doesn't benefit them personally. And we can get very wound up about whether the A's win their baseball game. No skin off my nose. But I could be really excited about it, just to give a trivial example. Very often we identify with our group. This group gives my life meaning. By belonging to this group, I have meaning. I belong to a sangha. My sangha gives me meaning, my virtue of belonging to the sangha. How closely we identify with the group often determines how clearly we can see what's actually happening because groups tend to reinforce one another. And we often find very common in groups. This, this was actually in uh, the article that Ajahn Amaro talked about. He was talking about, the, the title of the article was uh, View from the Center, And he was talking about the Buddhist differences between reaching enlightenment or nirvana through being an arahant, which is 
the practice that leads to elimination of greed, hatred, and delusion, or the path of the bodhisattva, which is, you know, in shortcut, living for the, the merit of, uh, for the welfare of all beings. Okay? So if you have these two very honorable approaches, which one of them is the right one? And this argument is part of the difference between different sects of Buddhism. And his point was, you have to ask, really, is this worth fighting about? Why are we fighting about this? What's our intention in fighting about this? We're all Buddhists. How is this happening? But it happens in groups. It doesn't matter what the group is. We tend to to identify very strongly with my path, my way of being. There is, uh, And we become very adept at manipulating facts to support our point of view. We manipulate facts. As bad as that word sounds, we do it. We do it. And there's a a strong pressure to conform. People who don't conform don't always last in the group. Because it makes people uncomfortable. And it's the group is about being comfortable and safe and right. What we have to do is pay very close attention to the feelings that are generated by our belonging to different groups or not belonging to different groups. Pay close attention to what is it that is active here? What's going on? What am I sensing? What am I saying? What are my intentions? Why am I doing this? The reason for asking these questions is not a philosophical one. It's a practical one of how do I eliminate suffering in my life and the life of those people around me? How do I find this way? So there are are two kind of uh, things about groups that are particularly insidious. One is called uh, the confirmation bias, which I just referred to, which is the tendency to accept and retain information that supports our views and reject or not notice information that does not support our views. So it's an issue of where are we looking and how are we looking and what is the view we're using to look at it. So we accept things that support our point of view. We reject things that don't support our point of view. The second thing is called uh, confirmation bias. I'm sorry, not confirmation, uh, attribution error. Attribution error. So when psychologists talk about this, they talk about cognition and feelings. And I apologize to any psychologists in here who know more about this than I do. But they kind of divide things up into kind of the thinking rational world and the emotional world. In Buddhism, we do it a little differently. We have what are known as the five aggregates of experience, so that every moment of experience contains uh, the physical reality, the senses where we touch, feel, see, taste, hear, the, uh, the physical reality, the feeling tone, which is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Kind of, I like this, I don't like this. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There is perception, concepts, so I can pick this up and I can say, this is hard and makes noise when I hit it. And uh, then I can, uh, so that's the material part of it. 
And then I, I look at it and I say, oh, this is a bowl. This is a bowl. And if I strike it, it can be a bell. This is concept. And then I can think about the bell. That is mental formations, thinking about it. And I can say, oh, that's a nice sound. That's a bad sound. So that's the thinking about it. And the, the fifth one is awareness. This is what I'm aware of. While I'm aware of this bell, I'm totally unaware of the glass of water behind me. Okay, so consciousness. So in our experience, we don't have, in, in a Buddhist kind of philosophy, we don't talk so much about feelings. Feelings are a combination of the concept. If I say I'm happy, there's the concept of happy. There's the pleasant feeling. There's the thinking about, oh, I like this. So it's a kind of combination of all of those kinds of things from a Buddhist point of view. So, but from a psychological point of view, so feelings would have a lot of those, a lot of those ways of experiencing things. But if you, if you think about it as thinking and feeling, cognition and how you feel about something. I've talked about this so long I forgot what I was going to say. Um, the, the modern psychology says that feelings influence the cognition. So the way we view facts has a lot to do with how we feel about them. That, you know, objective facts are kind of hard to come by. Truly objective facts are hard to come by. <clears throat> so the way things are spread between people the way we accept information and we spread information has a lot to do with what we feel about that information. So if the information comes up and it's... I read something today that was so foreign to me, I literally couldn't understand it. And the person who wrote it was, was clearly erudite, but it was just so contrary to my view of the world that I just said, what is he talking about? And that's because... What he had to say was just not something that I was willing to accept. And I could see I wasn't willing to accept it. And I was grateful that I wasn't going to have to sit and talk to him about it. <laughs> because I'm not sure what, how I would have done that. I'm not sure how I would have done that. So feelings influence what we think. And they, have, they play a key role in cognitive biases the biases we have on how we receive information. So if you think about it, you read an article, and this article agree, you agree completely with, and it makes, the, it makes the other team look really, really bad, and you have this moment where you say, okay, this proves that I'm right. I'm going to send this to everybody I know. And there's that feeling of, wow, this is great. I'm loving this. And then we go, you know, I don't know if that was really true. But I liked it. I liked the fact that I was winning and the other side was losing. Now, the other side, it supported my point of view. And the important thing is to, is to remember to stop and say, wait a minute, just because I like this, is it true? And uh, there, there is a... Uh, how, to, how to describe this... I get emails from a particular organization where lots of people write blogs and comment on things. And I've discovered that I have to stop, I just have to stop reading it. Because I realized that I was reading this stuff and saying, yeah, yeah, take that, take that. 
And then I'd have to say, wait a minute, I don't even know if that's true. That's somebody's opinion. I don't know this person from Adam. <laughs> or, you know, my thumb. And why am I believing this? And, and what are the facts that this is based upon? And I realized I didn't have time to do that with every item that came flooding into this particular source of email, so I've stopped reading them. The other thing I noticed is that those moments of, aha, quickly turned into really horrible, mm, ugly moments of ill will and unhappiness associated with that ill will because that's not what I want to carry in my heart. That's not what I want to be in the world as somebody who is who is uh, trying to get better of someone else. That's really not, just doesn't feel consistent with my intention in life. And so I say to myself, well, how important is that? Not very. Not very. So we have to ask ourselves, what's driving or motivating what we do? Is it to inform Is it about revenge, justification, greed? That niggling feel-good moment of revenge before it turns into something ugly? Group support. I want to support my group. They need this information. Sounds like a really good idea, but maybe it isn't. Does it make me feel part of a group and I've been feeling kind of outside that group and, you know, if I can contribute a little bit of dirt, then maybe, you know. Or it's not dirt, it's just feeding the flames of someone else becoming overly agitated and angry. If I'm feeding anger even with the truth, is that a skillful thing to do? Is that a skillful thing to do? The same is true if information reflects unfavorably on someone in our group. We tend to become quite defensive about it, and we're very much more careful about checking on its truthfulness. And we want to be absolutely, you know, these people are falsely maligning us, and watch that impulse. The difference between how we take in information based on the source of that information can be very useful. So we, the attribution error is that we tend to interpret the errors of our enemies and rivals in unfavorable light while explaining away the errors of our allies. And one of the ways we do that is through looking at people either from a situational or dispositional point of view. So, when you say, that person has done this thing that, that really is not very kind, but, you know, it's because they were under a lot of stress, and I know that her back really hurts and that it's, she's really having a hard time, and she just snapped. It's just because of this, it's not the way she is. Whereas someone with whom we are not allied comes and does something, the same something, we might say, oh, I knew that person was really terrible. Or if they do something good, that enemy, we say, oh, they're just trying to impress somebody. Okay, so the way we look at something, whether it is, whether we attribute that as part of their character they do something good. I know Lewis is a really good guy. He did that good thing. Yay, Lewis. It just proves what a good guy he is. 
I do the same thing. Someone looks at me and says, oh, she's just trying to show people what a goody, goody she is. Same action. We tend to distort the information based on how we feel about whether they're part of our group or not part of our group. Being aware of that happening is just crucial. Noticing when that happens. Noticing when that happens. At lunch today, someone was talking about um, this woman she knew who was supposed to be such a good person but was totally intolerant to this person that both of them had been invited to dinner. And she was intolerant toward one of these people. And so my friend said, can you believe that about her? Here she is, supposed to be such a a, a liberal, free-thinking, supportive person, and she's intolerant of that person. Can you believe that? And I'm thinking, yes, I can believe that. And I said, how do you know that person didn't do something to her? Well, no, that's not the case. And it just sounded so familiar. Oh, we all do that. We all do that. And catching ourselves do that is very important. It's important because it is the mindlessness of tribalism that is at fault, not tribalism itself. The word error in attribution error refers to the fact that attributions are often wrong. It's worth thinking about. So, one thing to think about is the way that we group people together, the things that we think about other people. So, One of the facts I ran across that was stunning to me is that there are 566 recognized tribes, federally recognized tribes in the United States, all of whom we refer to as Native Americans. And we treat as if they all think the same, act the same, should be treated the same, totally ignores the differences they have with one another, which can be substantial. And 14% of Americans were born outside the U.S. That's 47 million people. This was in 2015. Were born outside the U.S. from 140 different countries. Those are staggering numbers. 14% of us weren't born here. And those people all came here with very belonging, formerly belonging to very different tribes. And we have the arrogance to think they should all be just like us. <laughs> and it is a kind of arrogance. It's a kind of arrogance. So now I'm going to talk about coastal elites because that's a term that I cringe every time I hear it the coastal elites. One of the reasons I cringe is I don't like being grouped. I don't like being assigned to a group. I don't like the assumption that I'm like everybody else. You know, or that everybody else is like me. Now, part of that has to do with 
an overstrong sense of me. A feeling that I am an individual and I am special or I am different. There are feelings there of, uh, I don't want people to think that about me. Whatever that is. But this being grouped externally by people is, is really harsh. It's harsh. You know, or, uh, are the people in San Francisco the same as the people in Los Angeles or Fresno? We're all part of the coastal, despite the fact that coastal, not everybody is elite. And then when people say elite, they usually mean wealthy. But they can also mean highly educated wealthy. But not everybody who lives in California is wealthy by far. There was an assertion that Amy Chua made in her book. She says, although America's coastal elites are not an ethnic or religious minority, they are culturally distinct, often sharing similar cosmopolitan values, and they are extremely insular, intermarrying and interacting primarily among themselves. Wow. (laughs) That's stunning. (laughs) It's really stunning. I have a lot of reactions to that. The being grouped involuntarily is one of them. Uh, But also... It's kind of buying into this meme that we can define other people and that the way we, we define them determines what I should think about them. You know, I, I, don't, I don't react nearly as badly to being called a Californian as a coastal elite because there's something attached to that. Right? I mean, there's something attached to that. But to recognize that I have that cringy feeling is important. It's important because it says there's something here I'm reacting to. And I need to see clearly what it is that I'm reacting to. It is not only that I don't want to be arbitrarily lumped into a group. It's, I need to clearly know what it is that, that is cringeworthy about being called a coastal elite. So, um, in, the, in the article I read by Andrew Sullivan, he quoted, he, he said, one of the great attractions of tribalism is you don't actually have to think very much. All you need to know is what side you're on. Now, that, that's kind of damning. <laughs> now, it's kind of easy. I don't actually have to think about what makes it different if I just reject it, right? He quoted Orwell as saying, there is no crime, absolutely none, that cannot be condoned when our side commits it. Even if one does not deny that the crime has happened, even if one knows that it is exactly the same crime as one has condemned in another case, still one cannot feel that it is wrong. That's as good a summary of tribalism as you get, that it substitutes a feeling, a really satisfying one, for the argument. 
So much of our debate is either or rather than a complicated both and. He goes on to say, nurturing your difference or dissent from your own group is difficult. Appreciating the individuality of those in other tribes is even harder. Even harder. So, Robert Wright makes the assertion that mindfulness can overcome tribalism. He says, this is what's going to save America. Mindfulness is going to save America. His point is that what we have to do is notice. Notice, notice, notice. Notice, notice. What are my intentions? What's actually happening here? How are my feelings influencing my actions, my reactions, my responsiveness? Noticing, noticing, noticing. What do you notice? What can you ignore? What do you have to do about what you notice? Can you see yourself in those you oppose? Can you see yourself in those you oppose? I remember some years ago, there was a particular politician that I felt um, very antithetical to. And I discovered that one of his favorite songs was Van Morrison's Brown Eyed Girl, which happens to be one of my favorite songs. And I said, all right, we do have something in common. (laughs) And it actually helped me see him as a human being instead of representing something that I did not support. It was was just phenomenal. The change in me from being able to see that thing. Oh, we both like that. How about that? That means I can be in a room with him and I can actually share something that we both like. Interesting. Really, really interesting. It changes just a little the distortion of how I was seeing him as just representing what I did not like. I got to see him as a person. I didn't change my attitude about not liking the things he did, but I did change my attitude. And that was a plus. That was something. That was something. Do you judge people on consistency? They said they were going to be here. They're not here. Even though I've said I'm going to be there and then I don't make it for who knows what reason. But I don't consider myself bad for having done that. But that person is bad. Do we, do we judge people on consistency? Do we judge them on uh, um, adherence to what the group believes? Do we have, do we have uh, oh boy, litmus tests, political tests? Political litmus tests are very important. You know, you have to be for this or, you know, you're not good. So this discussion is not about trying to instill a sense of guilt in people. It is to instill a sense of opportunity. A sense of opportunity. And the opportunity is to see clearly what is driving our reactivity. When is being a member of a group a good thing in your life? And when is being a member of a group not supporting your intentions? 
And can you see it as a sense of safety within or without the group? When we're operating from a place of kindness, are we comfortable in the group? Can I be a member of this group sometimes, but not adhere to everything this group thinks? How does that feel? The question is not how we get rid of tribalism. It's how we understand and live with tribalism. Because we are all members of groups. We are all humans who like to see connections between other humans. Even people who say they don't belong to groups belong to the group that doesn't belong to groups. As soon as we make these distinctions, we're putting some people inside and some people outside. Know when you're making those distinctions. Know when you're making those distinctions. Ask yourself if those distinctions are consistent with your own intentions. Allow yourself the flexibility, as I allow myself the flexibility, to sometimes be wrong, but not perpetuate the wrong. Okay, I get it. Not seeing that this factor in this person is really important, that their experience of it is dismissive. Okay, I get it. I understand. I understand where I came from and why I felt that way, that my sense of inclusiveness was actually, in someone else's view, a sense of dismissal. Very important to see this. Very important. Humbling. I once went around for, well, for about two weeks, I did this exercise where I deliberately made myself notice the ethnicity and racial composition of everyone that I encountered, where I made a, a point of noticing it. I have to tell you, it was really painful for me because I have spent most of my life trying not to see that as a differentiating factor. Because my philosophical sense was that this was not inclusive. That I didn't want to be judging people by, oh, that person is a, that person is a, that person is a. It was an attempt to combat putting people in groups. And it was amazing to me how hard it was to not follow that training, that personal training, how painful it was. It was very interesting to me. And that very thing told me it was something that was important for me to to say, why are you doing this? And is it actually consistent with your intention? Or are you, as uh, the woman from uh, the Bronx writer, whose name I'm... Uh, Joshunda Sanders, are you just looking away? Because looking away won't save us. So those are my thoughts on what is a very uh, engrossing topic for me. I hope it was 
useful and interesting for you. I welcome any comments or insights that you can share with me because this is an ongoing an ongoing investigation for me. Thank you for thank you for your time. Thoughts? I have a poem that I did not bring because it's too political, but I'm going to recommend it to you. (laughs) It is a poem by Langston Hughes. um, And the title of the poem, don't tell me I can't remember the title of the poem. Uh, um, uh, Something that we need America to be America. The refrain throughout this poem is, America was never America to me. And it is a a kind of litany, it's kind of a long poem, but it's a kind of litany that reiterates the fact that that we we don't see, we don't embody our own ideals. And how important it is to see when we do not. Because they are ideals, because they are worth searching out. So... I leave that thought with you. And in the spirit of Ajahn Amaro's view from the center, I wish may all of our practice be for the benefit of all beings. Good night.